Good evening, everybody. It's just, it's good to be sharing with you tonight. Uh, I always enjoy when I can uh, you know, uh, bring the word on a, on a Sunday, so I'm glad to see you here. Just glad that we can gather here again. Uh, tonight we're going to be looking at several passages from the book of Daniel. And this is a book about a man who thrived in a land that was not his home. He was a young man, probably only but a teenager, living in one of the noble houses in Jerusalem. And when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, conquered Jerusalem in 605 BC, the people were taken into captivity, including Daniel and several of his friends. And even in a godless place like Babylon, uh, we see Daniel exalting God and rising in favor and authority. And all throughout the book, we see that God is very active in dreams and visions, revelations and miracles. So we're going to start in chapter 1. It says, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Daniel and the other young men experienced an attempt to assimilate them into Babylonian culture. And this has been done all throughout history. It's when someone or a conquered people um, are basically taught a new culture's history at the expense of their own. They're forced to adopt the practices and the beliefs and the languages of their new home. So their captors put them through this process to make them forget their past, their culture, their identity, and their God, and assume a new identity as a citizen of their new land. And there are three main tactics that were used, or at least that we see in this process. It says they were taught the language and literature of the Chaldeans, so the Chaldeans were the wise men and the astrologers of Babylon. So this is what I will call the education part of the process. So Daniel would have been studying, among other things, astrology, the idea that the movement of the stars and the planets can give uh, information and knowledge about life on Earth or future events. And I had to wonder, how is this similar to today? This is the time of year when school starts up again. And um, in most schools, Christians are in the minority. So what kinds of ideas are promoted in schools or especially on university campuses? So just as one example, when I was in university, uh, especially in my first year, evolution was permeated into pretty much every class I took, not just biology where you would expect it, but in chemistry, philosophy, even geology. Um, and in this room, there might be a number of opinions of exactly how science and religion fit together or don't fit together. Has evolution disproved God, or have we actually discovered the mechanism of his creative process? Um, and this is not the time to lay out all my thoughts on the subject. And there are still things that I wrestle with, like, well, how old is the earth really? Um, but when I read in my textbook, and this comes right from my first year textbook, science is limited to the study of structures and processes that we can observe and measure. Supernatural explanations are outside the bounds of science. I can't get behind an idea like that. But on the university campus, there is only one acceptable answer to the question of the origins of life. The second part of the process they went through is cultural assimilation. So basically, this is when someone is told, this is how we do things here, and you're one of us now. 
So for Daniel, that meant partaking of the king's food and drink, which had been probably had been sacrificed to idols and false gods. And they weren't just offered it, they were expected to eat it. And it would have been amazing. The New King James Version calls the food delicacies. And most of the young men brought into the king's court would not have put up any resistance to taking part in it. And thirdly, they were given new names. Each of their names, the ones they were given at birth, spoke a truth about the God they served and their identity in him. We can have a look at those. So Daniel's name means God is my judge, but he was renamed to Belteshazzar, which means Bel protect the king, and Bel was the chief idol of the Chaldeans and the astrologers. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious, but his name was changed to Shadrach, which means command of Aku, who was their moon god. Mishael, who is what God is, changed to Meshach, very similar, who is like Aku, again, the moon god. And Azariah, Yahweh is a helper, changed to Abednego, now referencing uh, the god of vegetation, Nebo. And what might come as a surprise is Daniel went along with some of this. He took the education, which would have included the study of astrology. Uh, was that wrong? Uh, was it wrong for me to study evolution in university? Um, I didn't have a lot of choice in the matter. Um, it's very hard to get a science degree and probably hard to get any university degree without at least encountering it to some, uh, to some extent. And ironically, evolutionary biology was my best course in university. Um, the good news is that when we know the truth, it helps us pick out the mistruths. So I can study it, I can excel at it, but when you tell me that a belief in a creating God is an outdated idea, that has been replaced by a more modern one that excludes him altogether, a light will go off. And this also gives me a better understanding of another perspective, a really a whole other uh, worldview. And this was gonna be important for Daniel as well, later on in the story when he goes up against the king's astrologers. He knew the limitations of astrology and the true source of his revelations. But we'll come there in a little while. He also took the new name that they gave him, but he drew a line at the dinner table. So why? The most likely explanation was that the food on the table was forbidden by the law. We see it in Leviticus chapter 11. It clearly states what God's people were and were not permitted to eat. So he could study astrology without practicing it, but he couldn't break those commands, even at the king's request. And because Daniel worshipped the living God, he did not want to partake in something that was used in the worship of a false god. And some have suggested that this is one way he could preserve something of his old way of life. In this new place where nobody believed like he did, where nobody worshipped like he did, every day he could call to remembrance something of that old way of life and that true identity. Maintaining that distinctive diet helped to preserve distinctive identity. So rather than join in uh, with the culture of the place. This daily ritual served as a reminder that they were children of God living in a strange land and that their source was not the king, but was God alone. So Daniel and his friends requested a diet of vegetables and water, and the request was granted. And after 10 days, they were found to be healthier and stronger than the others who had brought in with them, and 10 times better than any of the magicians and astrologers. And verse 17 says that God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. When he stood firm and did what was right, he was rewarded with God's favor. So let's move on to chapter 2. This is what we read. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. 
Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. So here we see the king troubled by a dream that he had. And he brought in all of his astrologers and the sorcerers and demanded to know what it meant. And he had to be sure that they could actually deliver what he asked for and that they weren't deceiving him. So he refused to tell them what the dream actually was, because if they could determine the meaning, they could determine the dream itself, right? And they protested, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. So in his rage, he ordered that every wise man in Babylon be killed, and this include, uh, would include Daniel and his friends. So when the captain of the king's guard approached Daniel, he asked what provoked the king's outrage and requested an appointment with him. Then Daniel went to his three friends and they prayed that God would reveal the mystery to them, specifically so their lives would be spared. And that night, both the dream and what it meant were revealed to Daniel. And what Daniel saw and what the king saw in his dream uh, was the statue of a man made of five different metals, the head of gold, which represented Nebuchadnezzar, and then the four other parts of different metals, weaker metals representing other kingdoms, weaker kingdoms that would actually overtake his. And note that Daniel's knowledge of astrology, which he was forced to study, would have proved useful here because he said no astrologer can show the mystery the king has requested. He knew the limits of what the wise men could do, and he made sure that God got the credit he deserved for this revelation. He said, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, not because of any wisdom that I have. Daniel made sure the king knew that it was not him who did this, but the God that he served. And what was the end result? The king glorified God. He called him the God of gods and the Lord of kings, and he gave Daniel high honors, many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect or one of the chief governors over all the wise men of Babylon. And now we can see a pattern beginning to emerge. Daniel is continually rewarded for his faithfulness. Even under the rule of a godless king, he excels at whatever he does. He earns the favor of the king, and he gains wealth, power, and influence, and he sees God glorified. Now we'll move on to chapter 3. In this chapter, we see the king set up this towering image, some sort of idol or statue made out of gold. And he gathered all of his governors and high-ranking officials to the place and told them to bow down and worship it when the music was played. And we have to ask, why? Didn't he just see the power of the living God? Literally one sentence earlier, he was calling him the God of gods and the Lord of kings. So it would seem that his conversion was very short-lived. So maybe he had to counter accusations from his people that he was showing too much favor on the Jewish captives. In his dream, he was represented by a head of gold, but the construction that he made was all gold. He wanted to be the all in all. Or maybe this was a declaration that his kingdom wouldn't fall, but it would stand forever. And isn't it interesting that Babylon had plenty of false gods, but they still felt that they needed another one. In Jeremiah 2.13, God says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
And in John 4, 14, Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. No matter how many gods they went after or worshipped, they were never satisfied. Because ultimately, our satisfaction can only be found in God alone. Daniel is nowhere to be found in this chapter, but his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were there. And at the sound of the music, they refused to bow down and worship it. Just like Daniel earlier in the story, they knew God's law. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no graven images. And when they were discovered, they were arrested. And they were given a chance to change their minds. They were reminded, this is how we do things here. And you're one of us now. And the king told them, if you worship the image I have made, good. And if not, they were to be burned alive. He asked, who is the God who can deliver you from my hands? So not only has Nebuchadnezzar turned from God, but he seems to have forgotten his power. But the three boys stood absolutely firm in their defiance of the king's order, and this is what they said. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And much like Daniel, when he refused to eat the forbidden foods, they refused to bow down to anything or anyone but God. They were confident in two things, that God could save them or that God could give them the strength to stand firm, even in the face of death. And there were some things they didn't do. They didn't try to figure out a compromise that would please everyone. You know, maybe we could just do it and not mean it. In effect, they said, get behind me, Satan. They didn't consider the consequences and they didn't hesitate to resist what they knew was wrong. Although I will add that there are some situations, I have found myself in some situations where the right decision might not be immediately obvious. And uh, those are times where taking the opportunity to seek the wisdom of godly friends is time well spent. So the king ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter, the number seven used in the Bible to represent completion or perfection. So they turned it as high as it could go. It was so hot it killed the men who were tasked with putting them in. But when they were in the fire, they were not harmed in it. And a fourth person could be seen walking around with them. Who was this? Maybe it was an angel, but more likely it was the Son of God himself. There not only to rescue them from the fire, but to be present in the fire with them. Whoever persecutes a follower of Christ persecutes him. And here we see him actually cast into the fire with his followers. In Acts 9.5, Saul encounters Jesus on the way to Damascus to kill some Christians. And he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He doesn't say he was persecuting his followers. He was being persecuted just the same. So we know that if we suffer for Christ or suffer for righteousness, he will be with us. Psalm 23 says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And once again, we see the young men's faithfulness rewarded, this time with a miraculous rescue. In chapter 4, we move ahead 20 years. Nebuchadnezzar is dead, and Belshazzar is now the king of Babylon. And during a drunken feast, a hand appeared and wrote something on the wall. And like Nebuchadnezzar before him, summoned all the magicians and the sorcerers, but none could interpret what the hand had written. The queen told the king about a man who had an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding, and was able to interpret dreams and solve riddles. Daniel now had a reputation for his ability to interpret mysterious things like this, so the king brought him in. 
And even though it was a very grim interpretation, the kingdom was to be conquered because of Belshazzar's pride and contempt for the things of God. He rewarded Daniel anyway and says that he was uh, given a robe, a chain of gold, and promoted to the third highest ruler in the kingdom. So again, we see Daniel receive God's favor, gaining even more authority. And if you remember from last week, we learned that Babylon was defeated and it actually happened later that night. So after Babylon has been defeated, a new king named Darius uh, is now in charge. Now in charge. But he seemed to have kept Dem, uh, he seems to have kept Daniel in that newly promoted position. And it says because of Daniel's excellent spirit, the king considered putting him in charge over the entire realm. So now the other rulers were becoming jealous of him because he just keeps rising higher and higher in authority. And they tried to find a way to accuse him, but he was found to be faithful and they couldn't find any fault in him. First Timothy 3.2 says uh, that a leader, specifically a church leader, but a leader should be above reproach, which means not only can no one make an accusation against you, but even if someone did, no one would even consider it to be true. The only accusation they'd be able to make would be in relation to his faithfulness. So they asked the king to make a law forbidding anyone to pray to any god or to any man but him for 30 days. So why might he go along with this? Um, ancient kings um, in that part of the world were worshipped as gods, and some of them had very low views of the gods they served, so they had no problem being worshipped instead of them or above them. And he probably liked the idea of being the sole mediator between men and the gods. So whatever his reason was for agreeing to the plan, we read that once the law had been signed, it couldn't be changed. Or if it could, it would be very difficult, and it would make the king look politically weak. So when Daniel learned about the new law, we read that he went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. He didn't show, put on some show of defiance, he didn't do that to make any sort of uh, statement. He just continued with the routine he had followed since he was a young man. And this made it very easy for his enemies to catch him in the act. They knew exactly when they would find him praying. So why did he do it the way he did? He did have other options. Uh, why not go into hiding? Why not pray when no one will be looking? Why not go pray in the woods? Uh, why not go to the basement instead of the window? Or just why not obscure who he was praying to, you know, mumble it, or just don't make it obvious who you're praying to. It was probably because he was well known as a man dedicated to prayer. He was a man who consulted God on all matters. So yes, he could continue praying in secret, and he would still be Daniel, and God would still be God, but it would change whatever others thought of his relationship to God, and he refused to compromise that public testimony. Or why not just stop for a little while? After all, it was only for a month. Uh, Jesus fasted for 40 days. Surely he could go 30 days without prayer. And surely he could do more for God and for his people alive than he could dead. But no, he couldn't possibly go for a month without it. Uh, we can't save up our prayer and hibernate on it later. God knows that we need daily communion with him, so we're told to ask for daily bread. We can't go for days or weeks at a time on daily bread. And note that he frequently operated in the miraculous, and he lived in an abundance of God's favor. And I'm willing to make a connection between his regular disciplined prayer life, his close fellowship with God, and how often he saw God moving mightily in his life. 
so for Daniel, we might say that not praying was a worse prospect than being eaten by lions. Would we die before not praying? Uh, Matthew Henry wrote this about prayer. He said, we could not live a day without God, and can men live 30 days without prayer? Yet it is to be feared that those who, without any decree forbidding them, present no hearty, serious petitions to God for more than 30 days together, are far, far more numerous than those who serve him continually with humble, thankful hearts. And I was very convicted when I read that. And sometimes I think we need to be reminded of this, and I know that I need to be reminded of this. Prayer is probably the easiest thing to let slip when things get busy because I have no time, or when things are going well because I have no need. What do we want to see happen? Do we want to see miracles? Do we want to see God move in our lives and in the lives of our friends? Well, then we need to be praying. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were standing up to the king, Daniel is mentioned nowhere in that story. And I'm just speculating, but we read that it was his daily routine to pray by his window facing Jerusalem. So is it possible that while they were facing you know, death in the fiery furnace, he was home by the window facing Jerusalem, praying for his friends, knowing exactly where they would be and what they would be facing that day? And much like Daniel, we live in a world where we're going to face temptations and we're going to be asked or even expected to compromise. And if we hope to stand in those trials and in those situations, we need to be well-fed on the word and in regular prayer. So when the conspirators told the king what Daniel had done, he was greatly distressed. And they reminded him that he had signed the law and that it couldn't be undone. And it says that he labored until the sun went down to rescue him. He pleaded with them until the end of the day not to proceed with their plan. But he finally relented and had Daniel fed to the lions. And the king told him, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you right before putting him into the den. He then spent the night unable to eat or sleep. So Daniel and King Darius, which of them was content with their decision? Who was able to sleep that night? Which of them was wishing for a second chance? And we'll just stop here for a moment. It's likely that most people in the room know how the story ends. But let's just consider one very important fact is that at this point, Daniel doesn't know anything past chapter 6, verse 17. You know, we get to read the story after the fact. He doesn't know what the outcome is going to be. Maybe God will miraculously rescue him. Maybe he's about to walk the path of martyrdom. He wouldn't be the first, and he certainly wouldn't be the last. So what was going through his mind? It was probably a lot like what was going through the minds of his three friends when they were going to be thrown in, into the furnace. God will rescue us, but he might not. Here's what they said. Our God is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods. They had absolute confidence, but it came with a disclaimer. Our God can, and he will, but he might not. And have you ever faced a situation, or are you facing a situation now where you're sure God is going to break through for you, except he might not? Or maybe it just feels like a waiting game. David did in Psalm 13. He said, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? 
Or maybe you faced a situation where you were confident God was going to come through for you. God was going to bring that miracle, and it never came. So instead of deliverance, there was only disappointment or defeat or death. Um, I've been there, and it can leave you disillusioned. It can leave you asking, you know, God, where were you? So after a lifetime of faithfulness and living in God's favor, Daniel is now suffering unjustly, specifically because of his faithfulness. Have you ever asked, didn't I do everything right? God, where are you? Why aren't you taking care of my problem? Why aren't you taking care of my pain? And as I was putting this together, I found the story of a man named Don who missed out on a promotion at his workplace, specifically because of his faith. Maybe he was a little too open about it, or maybe he was seen as intolerant. And afterwards, in light of that disappointment, he asked his pastor, what was the point of following God? And his answer was that God wasn't worth following because he will get you promoted. He's worth following because he is God. And you know what? I could, I could pick little bits out of this book and paint two very different pictures. I could point to God's people in captivity in a foreign land, the faithful being tempted and being persecuted and being sent to slaughter. Or we could look at Daniel and his friends living in God's favor, being promoted to positions of authority and gaining great wealth and seeing miracles. It's very easy to think that God is great when things are going great, and he's off to the side when things are going wrong. Our circumstances are not a barometer of our blessing. Our circumstances change like crazy, but God never changes. We don't know what good is going to come of our circumstances and what's happening around us. We don't know what God is going to do through them. But what we do know is God is faithful. He promises that he will never leave us or he will never forsake us even if it might feel that way. God's past faithfulness guarantees his present and future faithfulness. And that is something that I've learned over the years and something that I am very strongly convinced of. God has been faithful, therefore God will be faithful. So what should we take away from all this? First is that we need a firm persuasion of the truth. We need to know what's right and stand by it with confidence. We have a source of strength that allows us to live for God in a counter-kingdom world. Second, we need to be people of prayer. We can't go long without it, and Daniel shows us the importance of it for strength, for wisdom, and for the people around us. And uh, the way the story ends, at least this part of the story, when the king went to check on Daniel in the morning, he was still very much alive. And this is what he said, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. And in the second half of the book, he continued to receive dreams and visions about future events. And toward the end of his life, he wrote the book that we're reading from today. So as a young man, as a teenager, Daniel was taken away from his home and he was asked to leave everything behind. He trusted God, but he couldn't have been happy about the situation. But now, as an old man, he looked back on his life, and this is what he wrote, very first sentence of the book. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. It says the Lord gave the king of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. He can look back right to the start. He can look back all the way over his life and see God's hand at work. 
Also, the Ten Commandments begins like this, not with a commandment, but with a reminder. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. One, you shall have no other gods before me. So it begins with a reminder of what God has done for his people. So the third and final thing we should take away from this is that God is faithful. So we shouldn't just look to God when we're going through a trial, but we should look for him when we're not. Have you seen a miracle in the past? Or was there a time in your life when God was working, but it wasn't obvious at the time? Those things can be much clearer and much more obvious in hindsight. Uh, they say the rearview mirror is always clearer than the windshield. Was there a time that God seemed to let you down or maybe he didn't come through? We're never guaranteed our preferred outcome, but can you look back on those times and see that God really was at work, that God really did work good out of a bad situation? We were singing, well, I guess one of us was singing earlier that you take what the enemy meant for evil and you turn it for good. It's a theme that's repeated over and over and over in the Bible. These are the kinds of things that we should always bring to remembrance, especially if we're in a place where we're doubting or just wondering, you know, God, are you there? I'm in a, I'm in a place of doubt. Things aren't going well. We bring those things to remembrance. God has been faithful. Therefore, God will be faithful. So let's go back to Psalm 13. We read the first part a little bit earlier. David was asking, how long? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I have sorrow in my heart all the day? This is how he ends the psalm. I'll just end with this. He said, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So David found himself in, in some situation. He found himself in difficult situations throughout his life. Just asking how long, how long, how long? But he called to remembrance, what has God done in the past? I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. He knew that God was still with him. He knew that God had been faithful before and he would be faithful again.